Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Shamira Howard, a licensed clinical social worker who is based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who specializes in sexuality and relationships. Shamira travels and speaks extensively as a sex educator and is author of the book, Use Your Mouth, Pocket-Sized Conversations to Simply Increase Seven Types of Intimacy in and Out of the Bedroom. Today, we're going to be talking about sex therapy in non-traditional relationships. Specifically, we'll be exploring sex therapy for persons who identify as kinky or who are engaged in polyamory or other types of consensually non-monogamous relationships. I think this is a really important topic to discuss because people often have a tendency to assume that people who are, say, kinky or polyamorous kind of have sexual communication all figured out. However, they can certainly have sex and relationship problems of their own. So we're going to be talking about what those problems are, how to address them, and also why sex therapists need more training around alternative sexualities and relationship structures. So let's get to it. Hi, Shamira, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to speak with you. I know we've never met in person. Uh, We actually met through Instagram a while ago. I was running a contest, uh, giving away a couple of copies of my book, and you happened to be one of the winners. I was a winner, and I love Listen, I love your book as well. Oh, well, thank you. And you are not just a winner of an Instagram contest, you're a winner at life. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) So I'm I'm so thrilled to have you here. And I think that also speaks to the power of social media in connecting Mm -hmm. professionals. So to get started, can you please tell my listeners a little bit about your professional journey and how and why you got into this field? Yes. Hey, listeners, it's me, sexologist Shamira. So whenever someone asks me, what's a sexologist, right? Like, what's a sexologist? Is that like a biologist? Is that like a sociologist and all these other ologists, right? And so I say, yeah, kind of, sort of, but not really. And so, uh, but whenever my grandmother hears it, she usually says something like, Oh, this mess. She, my grandmother is 93 years old. So she'll say, Oh, this mess you do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she's not uh, as thrilled, but she, 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 she's pretty proud. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, as you mentioned, Justin. And I was first introduced um, to the field of sexology while doing my undergraduate studies at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I started this in the prevention side. So basically I was a peer health educator for the Red Cross. Um, They had a program uh, for HIV and AIDS for women on college campuses. And basically we would go on campuses and show videos to women in their dorm rooms about, of course, you guessed it, STI and STD prevention. Back then it was just STD. We didn't say STI, it was just STD prevention. And so while doing this, um, I realized that women were most concerned with not getting pregnant. They didn't know about the STIs and STDs. They didn't know anything. They just didn't want to get pregnant. So they were like, yeah, I take birth control. So I used to do condom demonstrations, which was totally not a part of this program. But I brought in condoms and I would do condom demonstrations on a water bottle. 
So the reason why I did this with this water bottle is because p- people would say uh, the specific brand of condoms weren't strong enough for them and they would break. And this was a myth about this specific brand of condom. So I decided, I was like, you know what, let me show you something. So I started doing these condom demonstrations and I just started studying more, reading more about sex and sexuality. And I graduated from this program. And right before graduating, I started the first um, women's health conference on campus. And what we did, it was through a research grant. And what we did was we... uh, we brought in gynecologists and all types of doctors from all over. But Justin, it did not really sit well with me because there were all the scary pictures about STIs and all kind of information about that and how like uh, the genitals look whenever they are infected. But I was like, well, no, this isn't really my jam. I don't want to scare people. People really need information. So I started doing my own reading and I started doing my own research and then a lot of self-study and just going into different community places doing this work. And then I found Widener University. So I was accepted into the PhD program at Widener and listen, the first weekend there, my mind was blown. So I thought I thought I knew a little bit about sex because I was doing this self-study, but I didn't know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically how I got into it. Yeah. And, you know, for me, the real eye-opening experience I had was I was working on my uh, doctorate in social psychology and I was studying romantic relationships and I was assigned to be a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course. And prior to that, I never had any real sex education because I went to Catholic schools for most of my life. And that course was so eye-opening and I learned so much through it. And that's really what inspired me uh, to become a sex researcher. But it also made me realize how little I knew about sex and how little everybody else must know about sex too. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So sex education is the one thing that I think all of us could stand to have quite a bit more of in our lives. Um, but anyway, uh, one of your specialties in the, the work that you do is in treating people who have uh, sexual and relationship identities that fall outside of the mainstream. So you do a lot of work with LGBTQ plus populations, people who are into kinky or BDSM sex, as well as those who identify as polyamorous. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about your work on kink and BDSM first. What are some of the issues that prompt people with kinky interests to come see you? So this is like one of my favorites. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll probably hear me say that a lot, but this is one of my favorites. And so with people who um, are on the BDSM scene or who are a bit more kinky than the kinky that we know, they typically come to me to help them um, with different types of sexual agreements and contracts, help them to negotiate really tough scenes that they might be wanting to engage in. And most importantly, for helping them manage the dynamics or the relationship outside of their BDSM dynamic. And that can be that can be really tricky for them at times, especially depending on what type of structure they're in. Some people are in 24-7 dynamics and some people aren't. And so what I find is when people come in, for example, a couple who might be in uh, a dom-sub type of dynamic only when they're on the scene or only if they're at like a play party or something like that. They might do that four times a week, right? And so 
the roles kind of mesh when they get home. Sometimes they're like, okay, how do I get out of this role? And they were like, I really want more softness or I want more intimacy or I don't want to engage in the stuff that we do when we're on the scene. I don't want you to be this dominant at home or I don't want you to be this submissive at home. Yeah, that's really interesting in terms of like the specific types of issues that come up. And if we kind of take them one by one, so you mentioned sort of the negotiation aspect and the consent piece. And, you know, for some people, it's really kind of like a contract that they have. So uh, how do you help people who have some concerns around consent and that kind of negotiation at the beginning? What kind of advice do you give to them? So one thing I really, really appreciate about uh, the BDSM community is their knowledge um, about consent. So that's actually where I learn a lot about consent from is from uh, through BDSM. So again, when I was at Widener, one of our SARS was that we had someone do a live BDSM demonstration. And this is when I first fell in love with this. So I watched I watched the flogging demonstration and was totally mesmerized by it. Everyone in this uh, workshop was totally mesmerized. I was totally mesmerized. I watched from the beginning to the end how the dom would really caress the sub, the person that he was flogging, and he would really, really be into her and just following her every cues. He knew when to stop, and he basically told us what was going on from start to finish. He knew how much pressure and all of this and paid so much attention. And so I find that in this um, specialty area, they are really huge on consent. And so some, but sometimes we know that there might be some boundary violations or depending on what type of scenes uh, they're negotiating. They might want to bring in someone else. And sometimes that's where the issues come in. It's how do we negotiate consent when we're bringing in someone else? So we start with asking questions. Um, you basically want to know what this person's boundaries are. So a lot of times in this space, people use like the stop light for signals. So they engage with safe words. And so red, of course, means stop. Yellow means slow down, check in with me. And green, of course, means you can go. In conversations with negotiating consent, I ask people to write down their yes, no's, and maybes. So yes is green, of course, no is red and maybes are the yellow spaces. And so you would negotiate based on that. Before a scene happens, you want to know what a person, where where can I absolutely touch you at? Are there any spaces where you don't want to be touched? Have you been under the influence of any alcohol and drugs? Because we want to make sure that we do this in a safe way. And when we're talking about consent, there's a specific model. Well, there are several different models. <laughs> so some people, people use um, several different models when negotiating consent. And so one of the ones I like to use um, that I like to talk to about is FRIES, right? And it basically tells us, it's a, it's an acronym, and it basically tells us what uh, consent is by using the acronym FRIES, F-R-I-E-S. Which stands for? So when, again, so when we're talking about consent, it's basically saying what this means, right? 
-hmm. It means the F stands for freely given. So basically someone who you're engaging with has to freely give you your, their consent. They, you can't coerce them or try to trick them into consenting with anything with you. Right. So it's a choice you make without pressure, manipulation, or under the influence of any drugs. The R is reversible, right? It stands for reversible because you can always revoke or take your consent back at any time. Just because you begin engaging with someone, it doesn't mean that you're totally consenting. I means informed. You can only consent to something that you know what's going to happen. So for example, if somebody says they're going to use a condom and they don't, then there isn't full consent, right? And the E is for enthusiastic. So you only want to do things that you absolutely want to do when it comes to sex or any types of things you're doing. So make sure that your consent is enthusiastic. Like, yes, I want you to flog me. And the S is for specific. So just because I say, yes, you can flog me on my back, it doesn't mean that I'm saying, yes, you can flog me in the face. So you have to make sure that you're very specific in what you are consenting to. And I love that model and I can see how it could apply outside of the BDSM world as well and could be really useful. And for example, when talking about something like multi-partner sex, you know, just any activity where you're bringing extra people into the equation, having all of those boundaries clearly delineated and what is and is not acceptable, I think is is really important and really useful because uh, I find that for example, when it comes to multi-partner sex, this is something people really fantasize about a lot, but that it's actually one of the fantasies that's least likely to turn out well mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're bringing somebody else in and they've not gone through all those steps that you just laid out so eloquently. So it's, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of applicability of this model to a lot of different types of sexual practices. But um, so something else you mentioned in terms of why people on the kink spectrum might come and uh, visit you is because they've got concerns about negotiating a particular scene. So can you give us an example or two of some of the BDSM scenes where people have some concerns and need some help kind of working through them? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you about one that is super controversial. It's probably one of the most controversial types of, um, dynamics that people have and it's the master slave. So basically the master would be the dominant and the slave would be the submissive person. And there are lots of different controversies about this specific dynamic, of course, due to uh, the enslavement of African-American people and everything that comes about that. And it's specifically controversial because of course, master slave, but also when it comes to interracial partners and interracial play, a lot of people are like, no, we're not going to do that. So I might have a couple who is in an interracial relationship and they want to engage in a master slave type of dynamic and they want a scene. They want to do a runaway slave type of scene. Um, And somebody in the dynamic might not be comfortable with it. I've had situations where they might be at a party and other people there have felt uncomfortable about it. So for that reason, there are many dungeons and sex clubs that was that say no to this type of play in their uh, club. Some people say play at your own risk. But this is specifically something that couples who want to engage in this might have a problem with, even if they're not in an interracial relationship. So what we do is we basically process the feelings around it. Like what's coming up. We talk about 
um, of course, what's your reason for wanting to do this? Why do you want to do this? Um, some people say, well, why do we have to do a master slave if we're already doing a, uh, you know, a daddy dom little girl, um, dynamic or some other dom sub dynamic. And there's, some information that says slaves can't say no. And that's absolutely the opposite of everything I just said about consent, right? So that's why people come in and like, well, he said that I can't say no to this, or she said that I can't say no to this. And I, we have to go over what consent looks like. So basically, whenever someone comes in with a controversial or some type of dynamic that they're having trouble with, it usually goes back to consent and we just have to go and reinforce or either set a boundary around it. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up that example because uh, race play is one of those things that mm -hmm. many within the, the BDSM community consider to be a form of edge play, right? Where this mm -hmm. is one of the most extreme taboos that, um, that, that can be explored. And as, as you mentioned, that some clubs even prohibit people from doing it because it is considered to be uh, really extreme. So uh, I think it's fascinating to kind of hear a little bit more insight into some of the struggles and difficulties that people navigate when they're attempting to engage in this sort of edge play. But right, right. Something else you mentioned is that, you know, for some people with BDSM interests, they have problems getting out of those roles outside of the scenes they're participating in with their partners. So for people who might be struggling with, you know, sort of getting out of a dom dynamic or a sub dynamic in their everyday lives and relationships, what, what kind of advice or strategies do you offer to them? Right. Sit down and be quiet. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that comes up often. Um, Especially it comes up like a few days later, you know, when they're doing something around the house and somebody might be a bit more forceful and maybe the dom is a bit more forceful in asking for a request to be made. And instead of asking for it, the dom uh, might demand that it's done and that brings up some type of uh conflict or argument. So I usually tell people to make sure you're able to bring this up in a safe space with each other at home. So set your boundaries. If you're going to have boundaries for BDSM play outside of the home, make sure that they're explicit. Make sure that you know what those boundaries are. Make sure that when you get home, you remind each other that, okay, we're home now. We can turn it off. Of course, that's easier said than done. So when you find yourself in a space where you feel like someone isn't turning it off, you gently, you just want to gently remind them that they haven't turned it off. So you could say something like, you know, I'm kind of feeling like this might be a bit more demanding or this feels more like we're in a scene versus we're at home. Can you ask me to do that in a different way? And so if you find that this is something that keeps coming up, keeps coming up, then you do want to talk to a kink friendly, kink knowledgeable, more kink knowledgeable therapists about this issue to see if they could help you get out of this dance. Because sometimes it might be we need to renegotiate the boundary here or we need to we need to enforce a little bit more structure around what's going on at home. Some people have even had to pull back how much they engage outside of the home in the BDSM scene. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like they kind of need a safe word outside of 
the dungeon or yeah wow (laughs) (laughs) that's that's so interesting i I love this conversation um now thank you for sharing all of that and i want to turn and talk a little bit about the polyamorous and people in open relationships who might come to visit you and what are some of the the specific kind of issues there that prompt them to come see you in the first place yeah, so the people in open poly relationships and, of, of course, swinging relationships, mm-hmm. they all come from many of the same or different reasons, right? So, uh, for example, people in open relationships, they generally open a relationship um, to give each other a the space to maybe engage sexually with other people. They are not necessarily looking for maybe an emotional attachment or connection. People who are poly, they usually are looking for that romantic and emotional connection with different people. And people who uh, participate in swinging or partner swapping, sometimes they either just look for swinging partners or they look for long-term partners who they swing, you know, who they engage in swinging or partner swapping um, with as well, Um, or erotic play, as many of us call it now. (laughs) So so basically they'll come for issues with choosing partners, like how do I choose a partner? And this is more for people who are in swinging dynamics, like choosing a partner or jealousy is another one. There's this myth that people who are engaging in non-traditional relationships don't get jealous. And so that's one of the main things we talk about, especially like when we're presenting at some of the swinging conferences, we talk about jealousy a lot in the lifestyle. Um, People who are poly, they might talk about feeling left out. Or one of the main things they talk about is the issues with managing time and their partner's expectations and also keeping up sexually with different partners. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's so interesting. You know, as somebody who studies polyamory, a concept that often comes up is this idea of conversion and people, mm-hmm. people sort of characterize it sometimes as the opposite of jealousy where they take pleasure mm-hmm. and their partner's pleasure. But, and it's interesting in some of our polyamorous research, we found that some people say, I don't experience the emotion of jealousy. I don't know what that is, but something we've seen in our work and something that you've highlighted is that, you know, not everybody is able to move past all of that jealousy. And, and so how do you deal with that? How do you cope with jealousy in some type of open or polyamorous relationship? I'm glad you said that people, some people say they don't experience emotional jealousy. Um, And so I've heard that as well. Like I've heard someone say, you know, my partner, you know, they have a partner and I was okay with them having partners before, but I'm just not okay with this partner for some reason. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about it, you know, just saying, well, you know, maybe is it some jealousy? Well, no, I don't get jealous because, you know, I, I've seen them with other people before. And so we have to understand it's one, it's okay to be jealous. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, we've been taught socially that, being jealous is quote unquote a negative feeling or emotion. And for one, feelings aren't categorized. We can't categorize them as negative or positive. They just exist. So they just are. They exist on the same spectrum. Um, and jealousy is 
a normal feeling that we have and that we get and it's okay. So jealousy isn't the problem. It's what happens, what we do with the jealousy. So if you're bursting out her windows in her car or his windows in his car or their windows in their car because you're jealous or you're putting a nair in their lotion because you're jealous, then, <laughs> that, then you know we have a problem there, right? Um, so it, we talk about the jealousy and first what we do is normalize that even in open or non-traditional relationships, especially polyamorous relationships, it's okay to experience jealousy. And it's not, it's not saying that you have a problem. You just recognize that this person shows some type of threat to the relationship. And I usually tell people when you feel jealous or when you don't know what the issue is, lean into what you like about the person. That helps you to kind of see where you where you might be falling short or where the jealousy might be stemming from or where the ill feelings. What is it that you like about this person? And sometimes you find like the person that I was just speaking about, they found that this person seems to always have time for her partner where she doesn't. So and it's like they just seem to always have time and they have their stuff together. And and I say, and so sometimes you wish you had more time. Right. And they were like, yeah, and they're like, see. It's okay, right? It's okay. We're just, you just basically want to normalize it and lean into what is it that you really admire about this person and focus on that. Um, and also talk to your partner about this. When jealousy comes up, let your partner know, like, you know, whenever I saw you engaging with them, I did feel a little jealous about it. I did feel whatever you're feeling, let them know what's going on. And when you do this, tell them what your desires are and what your needs are. You know, you might not be saying, hey, I don't want you to engage with them, but you might be saying, you know, I would really like for us to spend a little more time together. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk about one of the other issues you mentioned in polyamorous relationships, which is sort of that um, uh, time management piece a little bit mm-hmm. more. In one of uh, the previous conversations I had with you, you talked a little bit about some people kind of having difficulty in terms of finding time for all of their partners then also finding time for themselves. Can you Mm -hmm. speak a little bit about that issue? Yeah. So, you know, if you, let's say you have your, you have two partners and it's you. So there are three of you in um, this relationship. Some people have hierarchy. Some people don't. Some people have like, you know, this is my primary partner. So it doesn't matter. However you do it, this doesn't matter. Time usually comes up when a partner is like, okay, so Shamira, help me with this. I got it figured out. Okay, I'm going to be with partner A, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then I'm going to be with partner B, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I'm like, okay, how's that working? I'm exhausted. I'm like, I got, well, I guess so. You know, you're not considering you. you got to add you. So whenever we're talking about managing time in polyamorous relationships, you have to, if it's three of you, you have to split the time in three and not just split the time based on the amount of partners you have because you will wear yourself out because what you're doing is just you're basically yo-yoing yourself between partner A and partner B and just figuring out, okay, okay, I'm over here for these days and then I'm over here and then I'm back over here. And you don't spend time alone with yourself. So you don't have that time to regroup and reprocess and reconnect to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's sort of like polyamory self-care is uh, yes. sort of what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I think that's important in any type of relationship, whether it's monogamous or polyamorous um, or 
somewhere else on that uh, spectrum of non-monogamy is that we, we all need some time to ourselves. We all need some space. And I think a lot of us have a lot of difficulty managing that and navigating it because we've sort of been taught or we've been conditioned to think that we have to spend all of our time with our partners or in a relationship. So um, I really appreciate your advice and insight there. So um, we're running out of time here, but something else I wanted to ask you was uh, in your professional training, did you get a lot of education around how to treat people with with kinky interests and people who are in polyamorous relationships. I know you talked a little bit about mm-hmm. uh, the, the BDSM demonstration that you saw, but um, just tell us a little bit more about kind of what your training experience was in that area and whether you think that it's typical or atypical for people to get a lot of education on these topics. So first of all, it's very atypical. <laughs> so that's why people, whenever they, whenever they know that you are like kink informed, they're knocking down the door whenever, because people want to see therapists who are trained and aware and who understand uh, the nuances of the types of dynamics that they're in. So when I went to Widener's, when um, I first really learned what that BDSM was really, it could be really structured. And then of course I started doing self-study on my own. And then I entered into a a sex therapy certification program. Um, And right before entering into this program, I started entering into different types. I started taking courses on BDSM and kink on my own that were just independent of both the school and the program. I also attended programs that were specifically geared towards BDSM and kink, and I read a lot of books. So most of the stuff I did was a lot of self-study on my own with, of course, the academic conferences and, of course, like going to stuff like Sex Down South that really gives a lot of information about uh, this dynamic as well. But also I did a lot of work in a sex therapy program um, that offers lots of supplemental information about different types of relationship structures and uh, sexual diversity. So what you're saying is that if you're going to be a therapist or a clinical social worker, that you really have to go out of your way to train yourself in these topics because those opportunities just often aren't provided in our educational programs. And that's something that I've seen in my own experience. I actually worked as a social psychologist in a counseling psychology doctoral program for several years. And we only had one course in our four-year program that was on sexuality issues. And, you know, that, that certainly was not designed to make everybody a, a kink informed or you know polyamory informed <laughs> therapist because how can you cover everything you need to know about all things relating all to things. sex in, exactly. in just one semester um, and so that's why so many uh, people who work in this area that's it's really incumbent upon them to go out and seek out these training opportunities um, yeah and and so for people who are looking for a therapist or uh, other provider or professional who is kink informed or who is competent in dealing with consensual non-monogamy, where do they go to look for providers who know what they're talking about? So that's a great question. Um, the kink there's a kink and poly aware professionals directory, and so basically you you could go there to. Uh, the kink, it's kapprofessionals.org. You could go there to find um, a provider who is kink 
and poly informed and aware and knowledgeable. You could do also a Google search to see uh, who's who. If you're looking for a therapist, you could contact the therapist and ask them like what's their uh, experience working with kinky and poly couples just to see if you feel comfortable with them. Uh, you don't want to go to someone who you're teaching what polyamory is. If they if they say, yeah, yeah, I work with uh, sexually diverse people. I work with kinky people and poly people. And, you know, if, if you have to teach, because this is a real thing, right? I just met with someone who they were like, yeah, this person told me that they were uh, trained in polyamory, but I had to teach them what polyamory, I had to give them the definition of polyamory. So if you're teaching them what it is, then, then you would generally want to find someone else. And also for professionals who want to do this work, I recommend you talking to like, you can go to asect.org and you can find different professionals who are certified and are able in different programs that are um, able to give you more information and more education in these different areas. Because even doctors don't take a lot of courses, medical doctors and gynecologists don't take courses in sexual education as well. Yeah, and so the the take home is that you can't assume that just because somebody identifies as a sex therapist or because somebody is your doctor or physician that they're going to know everything they need to know to treat your specific issues that you might be experiencing around sexuality. So it's it's incumbent upon uh, patients and clients to do their due diligence and, and really research their providers to make sure that they're getting somebody who is trained and competent who can most successfully address their issues. Absolutely. That and it's on us as professionals to make sure we are trained and competent before we tell people we are. <laughs> yes. And and I think a lot of professionals in the interest of wanting to appear inclusive will say that, yes, I treat everybody. And, Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it sounds great, but they don't have the training and credentials to do that. And so they might be going beyond the scope of what they can really practice. But and that's a whole other podcast topic. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, um, I participate in a lot of the training programs for sex therapists and physicians where I, I do a lot of these continuing education trainings about, lately they've been about sexual fantasies in particular, but um, I think it's so important for people who work in this area to keep seeking more and more education because the research is always changing. We're learning mm -hmm. new things and you can take that and directly apply it in your practice. And most effectively treat your patients. So Absolutely. We have to stay up on our knowledge. We certainly do. Well, thank you so much, Shamira, for this wonderful conversation. I think you've given my listeners a lot to think about. And uh, yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about where they can go to learn more about your work? So you can just go to my website on thegreencouch.com and you can learn more about my work and how I help people, um, who are in these lifestyles. Well, thank you again for your time and for your amazing insights. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on Apple, where I hope you will take a moment to rate the podcast and review it. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire, and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life, which was just released in paperback. Thanks again, Shamira, for being here. Thank you all for listening. Until next time.